1: What up, bro? Yo, here we are. So the big news is that we're probably moving. Yep. Allegedly. Allegedly leaving this place. And we're very excited. But uh, the one thing that I'd written down related to that was uh, just a rule of life, which I've encountered many times, which is it's generally, and there's, of course, exceptions to this rule. uh, When somebody's not committed, don't close your options. So there was a point in this purchasing or not purchasing, leasing process, I'm just renting uh where i wanted this place we'd indicated that we wanted it and they were kind of dragging their feet Mm -hmm. and so i mentioned to my agent that i was like okay i need you to send me other places because i have to move he relayed that information to them what he got back from them was no 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 tell him to stop looking at other places oh really i (laughs) didn't know that oh you didn't hear that no they didn't want me to all of a sudden the power dynamic flipped they didn't want me to look at other places When I was a sure thing, they were happy to take their time, we don't know, let us see, we're thinking, because he's got two little dogs, and then when I was like, okay, I'm going to look at other places, it was, wait, 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 wait. we need this, and it was, I made a video about this, same exact thing, two girlfriends ago, when we were getting started, and it, you know, is this going to happen or not? I was, initially, like, I really like you, I want to do this, I'm available, and then I, uh, I made plans on a Wednesday. She canceled Sunday, Monday. She said she couldn't do Tuesday. I said, okay, well, I can't do Wednesday. She's like, what? So I'm not going to see you for five days? <laughs> like, and then, and then she canceled her plan. Immediately canceled you, yeah. her yeah. plan. And it wasn't, it wasn't um, in neither case, I think something that gets misunderstood here is it's, it's not make stuff up. It's not pretend to be busier than you are. It's just uh, when people say that they're not available to commit re-engage with the pool of other options yeah, yeah. and make plans in your schedule and be like, oh, sorry, I can't come visit that home that day. I have another visit on the calendar. Yeah. And you will watch. It is incredible. The pep
2: that gets, I mean, I've been on the flip side of this as well. The pep that gets put in your step or the other person's step when they realize that they could miss out. Yeah. People hate missing out. It's like that, that predictably irrational study they did where there was a, a game and when you click certain doors, you can make a certain amount of money mm-hmm. and they tell you how much money you can make maximum, the range. And so you click around until you find the max range and then you just hammer on the door that pays the most yeah, money. Yeah,
1: so like some doors will, will, once once you click, you'll say that's a 10 cent door, that's a 50 cent door. And you know it goes up to a dollar. So once you hit, find a door that's like 80 cents or something, you've only got 30 clicks. You should probably just max you out just click it the as 80 much cent as door. Yeah.
2: Well, it's, and it's not 30 clicks, it's timed. So you have oh, as many it? clicks as you can in a minute. And they run that study and what everyone does, which makes sense, is once they find the high paying door, they just click it. Mm-hmm. Then they ran the same study Except once you click a door and then you move to a different door, if you don't click it, the image of the door disappears. It starts to gray. Yeah. Yeah. So you click a five cent door, you know, it's zero to a dollar. Mm -hmm. And then you find and you click an 80 cent door. When you see the five cent door start to gray out, people will run their mouse back and click it, even though it's not the most efficient use of time to just to keep the door there. And then they go back and start hammering the more Mm -hmm. expensive door until the cheaper doors start to disappear again, mm-hmm. and then they go click it, just to make sure nothing grays out. Mm-hmm. It's this weird, irrational thing humans have. They don't like letting opportunities go by.
1: Well, I would, you know what's interesting is I listen to that. That could just be a reflexive, I agree totally with the underlying point that is being made, is that people jump when you tell them that they're scarcity. It's yeah, incredible. Yeah. That could just be like a habit of interacting with interfaces, which is you don't let things gray. That could be an unthinking habit. I do, we, we spoke about this yesterday is that one of the many problems with studies is even when they're done well with a good sample size that isn't just of college students, which I think a lot of the predictably irrational ones are, they, they extrapolate too much. It's like, this just proves that
2: people click doors
1: on computer yes. screens so what that you are want fading to do, away. So, like, this is
2: something I was talking to a friend about. What you want to do is take it and be like, okay, where in my own life would yeah. has that? Do I have the experience that runs counter to this? Mm-hmm. Does my experience confirm this? when I go try to experiment with this, yes. what happens? So it's not about just taking that at face value, but it's going, okay, well, given that this is the case, where else in my life have I seen this? Where mm-hmm. have I seen counter evidence to this? If this were true, what would it mean for negotiations and things like that? And mm-hmm. then you'd come to realize like, okay, I don't want to be, if I'm going to be an applicant, I want to be an applicant looking for multiple jobs. Yeah, yeah. I saw this in finance. Uh, finance is all about exploding offers from On other their firms. Yeah, so yeah. firms are like, hey, you have an offer. It's a six-figure offer. Just so you know, if you don't sign in the next 48 hours, it goes away. And they're trying to apply that pressure to you so that you'll sign with them. But the problem is the firms that do this tend to be the ones that treat you the worst, like they're the most Mm -hmm. slave labor-esque firms. So what you do is you get the offer and you just go, okay, well, I'm just going to call every firm that I had a first round interview, but not a final round interview and say, hey, I have an exploding offer. And then they don't want you to disappear. So they all of a sudden, you get preferential treatment over every applicant who doesn't have an exploding offer. Ah. And so you're getting offers from good firms that will treat you well, who are trying to accommodate this bad firm. So it actually doesn't work out for the firm, but it works out really well for you because you become the disappearing door. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Totally. So they're trying to be the disappearing door, but they accidentally put scarcity on you for the other firms that you're applying to, which works out really well yeah. for you.
1: Wait, and you just, you just mentioned a nuance, which I think is true, because people will... Like There's no reason that the bad
2: firm has to make it a 48-hour exploding offer.
1: They don't need to make this decision. No, they, they know, know they their have class a bad, is coming in know two They know months. they have a bad reputation. So, it's just
2: straight up indisputable that they treat their associates worse from yeah. a lifestyle perspective.
1: And so there's another point which which we've, I think, internalized and maybe haven't said this heuristic is when people give you exploding offers that do not have a grounding in reality, the answer is no. Yes. It's, it's okay, but if you have to decide by the end of the day or you have to sign this, you have to join the one-year versus one-month program right now or you can't switch – It's just a no. It's like when there's no reasoning for it. So my reason is like, hey, uh, my move out date is is, Well, your other reason is is I got told yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so we're moving a half hour away. Yeah. And if I move and you don't, it complicates our friendship Mm -hmm. and work experience. So it's like, I'm not doing this as a show. I'm doing this because either way, I need to see if I'm moving to Malibu. Yeah, yeah. Because Ben now has to sign his contract because he got it. Yes. So it's it's not a bluff. It's a genuine one way or the other, I got to find a place in Malibu. So if not you guys, I'm going to find other places. So it's, I guess, yeah, when they're exploding
1: offers grounded in reality and also make them occur in your own life, which just means don't, don't get tunnel vision when you're in the dating phase of a job or a house or a date. You know what (laughs) I mean? Like, like don't get tunnel vision. It actually makes you a less compelling
2: choice for someone. Yeah. The other thing is, I mean, even forgetting all this just makes sense. I, I, had a place, so you found your place first, so mm-hmm. I found a place nearby, I was going to visit, and I called them, I was like, hey, can I visit? And they said, oh, we only have one unit available. So again, this is like the bad firm giving the scarcity. Mm-hmm. I go, okay, well, then I'll look for other places. I was gonna just come sign with you. Yeah. I found an even better place. So forgetting any of the scarcity games, I was just being lazy. I'd found mm-hmm. one place that looked good online, and when I went and found options, I found an even better option. So yeah. I feel like there's, you're always well-suited to have options in any negotiation or decision. Mm-hmm. And, and the the second point, which
1: is when, when someone tries to play this trick on you, like those bad firms, you have to have the discipline to say no, because if they're using an exploding offer without a necessary grounding in reality, they're trying to trap you <laughs> like 98% of the time.
2: Yeah, I'll tell you who it worked for. It didn't work for people who didn't want to go to the firm and felt like they were scared that the offer was going away it worked for people that don't like interviewing mm-hmm. it worked for it, at least the one person i can think of a very very smart hardworking person who doesn't like the feeling of trying out and she mm-hmm. was an incredible candidate probably the best of my class from blackstone yeah and she took the very first offer not because she just never it was wanted to but for they, another were just interview. Saying, they were saying they're just saying hey you don't have to interview anymore this is and why I was saying, <laughs> th- wait just to be clear this is a 2 plus year decision Pay is different. Hours are different. The type of work is different. You're the. I literally said you're the most eligible person. Like I, I'm betting on myself that even if this explodes, I'm definitely going to get another offer. You're better than me in every way. Please don't take this because this firm has is notorious for working people to the bone. I know you're a quiet person that will just allow themselves to be worked to the bone. Yeah, and you can do so much better. And she thanked me for. The kind words said she'd think about it and then signed. And I asked her why. She said I didn't want I don't like doing interviews. They make me uncomfortable. Wow. It's like All right.
1: Send her charisma university. Please <laughs> for free. Just go. Yeah. <laughs> I think Well now she's
2: <laughs> thirteen years deep in yeah, her yeah. career, so she's probably either left the firm or is a boss. You know,
1: there are a lot of situations in I, I where people my and I I will do the same thing, will shoulder so much more work in order to avoid a scary social situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, or we're shoulders so much less pay. I was just going to say, or they just don't want to like, ask it's like, like, just go in and ask her it's like, no, that's uncomfortable. It's mm-hmm. like, you do realize, and again, this is this is where I do think that there's a ton of merit to the people. If you were to dock that woman's pay and say, hey, if you don't come in and and speak to the boss, we're going to take whatever thousand dollars away from you, she would go in and, and suck it up. Yeah, yeah. But when it's for an additional amount of money, the same amount, no longer interested. And I don't think it's just down to the, you know, uh, diminishing returns of dollars. It's the sense that, no, this is mine and you can't take it. People get very, very protective. But when it's money to be potentially earned, it's like, oh, well, easy come, easy go. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I've definitely made those decisions. And you've, you've actually been great with that. The amount of times that you have sent a four-line email to a sponsor that's like, hey, just – could we have more money? Yeah. yeah. Like almost without (laughs) justification. (laughs) Sometimes there's justification, but I'm sure there's been emails that are not justified. Yeah. Uh, And the amount of thousands of dollars that that has generated for us, because they just sometimes say, yeah, yeah. okay. uh, Is
2: incredible. You're just, you are, that is a skill that you have is. I actually think it's (laughs) because I have a sister and my parents were, they, I think they knew this, that women don't ask for raises. And so they were telling her a lot, like, you should ask for what you want. Yeah. Don't don't be like that. And I'm just sitting at the dinner table eating, hearing the speech, but it's not for me. But I think mm. it just got in there. Yeah. Because my sister also has done that, has asked for raises in jobs where she wouldn't have gotten them, but then she asked. And they're like, well, okay, the only way to give you a raise is a promotion. So I guess we'll do both. Something yeah. like that. So yeah, it's... I don't know. I'm just lucky that it's not hard because I, I can't lie and say I did a bunch of personal development to get there on mm-hmm. that particular thing. Yeah, that's just funny to me that we'll just go. That was, that was the best email we've sent to date. Oh, yeah. I, I work so hard. I business. work so hard sometimes to try to, <laughs> you know, to the things that you try to do to make something 5% better that takes weeks yeah. so that you can make a couple grand extra. And instead, you just go, "Hey, can I just have a couple grand extra?" Yeah, you guys have been doing well for us. Why not? Yeah, yeah. basically, our client is Amazon, so <laughs> think they're kind of rolling in it right now. Yeah, and I think we do very well just yeah. based on the, the few we I have I think done. that's why they don't. I think that's why they don't fight us.
1: I think they just go, "Yeah, you guys are. You guys are okay."
2: Well, they got a good. They got a good thing. So guarantee us three hundred thousand views, and then we get three million. We go, "Can we have extra money?" No, 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 flat fee. Okay. Okay. Fair so, enough. Sure. Um, I've only got a handful of things. So one of this, uh,
1: so it's it's the NFT space again. Oh, I have an NFT thing. So I will i don't, I, I want to frame everything around NFTs with going, I totally have an open mind about NFTs and it's entirely possible. I actually think this is the best analogy that it's like 1997, 1998 with the internet. And the internet is going to be a thing, but most of the businesses being proposed are going to fail. Like pets.com is not going to work. And MySpace will work for a minute and then disappear. But the internet at its core yeah, is yeah. fantastic, and, and, and so Facebook NFT is not even on that. So uh, yes, could be, so, tech, could be fantastic. Exactly. Wow, all these things are worthless. Yeah. So so for so that's one caveat. The second is that I actually think that um, in this case it's Gary Vee, and I think he really did try to think and provide value in a way that other influencers in the NFT space have not. They've just seen here's a chance, essentially, for me to monetize my young audience with the prospect of making a ton of money. It's just it's kind of like gambling for children mm-hmm. and they're running these that's that's people don't want the product they want the opportunity to get rich for nothing and uh kids are especially especially susceptible to that with everything that they're seeing on tiktok of all these fake rich mm-hmm. kids their age um but it's so it's this is this is what's weird for me Gary started this NFT ecosystem, and he's now going to put on an event that the NFTs will get you access to if you have certain NFTs mm-hmm. for years to come. He's, I think he said he's committing over 100 NFTs come with one-on-one access to him mm. for certain times. Uh, and I, we thought about this when NFTs came out. And what we came to is like, we can sell my future time today. Like if I want to sell access to me in two years, I don't need an NFT to do that. Mm-hmm. If, I to wanna, if I want to commit myself to working into the future without any understanding of what my health is going to be, my family situation, what my interests are,
2: I can do that. Yeah, because a common, a common argument was, why, so the question is, why would an NFT go up in value? And the answer is, imagine if you had an NFT mm-hmm. that gave you the right to talk to Elon Musk and you bought it 10 years ago. Yeah. You're basically betting on Elon Musk. It, it would be impossible for you to get that one on one now, but he's yeah. contractually obligated because ten years ago you bought an NFT from yeah. him that gave you that right. So from the, the purchaser's is, perspective, it's like, oh, this is this is a good idea for the right. response is why why would Elon do that? If he actually <laughs> if he actually thought that his future self was gonna be running seven incredibly important businesses, he wouldn't want to have all of his time dedicated to fulfilling contracts from NFTs. Nor would he want to get paid a percentage of the price that he was worth 10 years ago. So again, correct me if I'm
1: wrong, but the bet there as Elon Musk is that the market is valuing future me higher than I do. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like cuz I the market thinks I'm going to go like this and I know I'm only going to go like this. So if I can sell my time now, I'm going to trick them and I'm going to make more money. Like or, if, you want, if you want to sell one-on-one access to yourself, sell it the day that you feel like doing it or the week that you feel like doing it at the rate that you go for. I just don't understand this desire to commit oneself forward. It seems almost in service of participating in the NFT economy. Like this
2: whole project. I think Gary, and I could be wrong, gets excited by new stuff. So he was oh, all sure. about Snapchat. He's like, you got to be on Snapchat. You got to be on Snapchat. You got to be on Snapchat. I don't think that ended up being good advice or working out. But that's just, how, that's just how he rolls. You gotta be on Instagram, you gotta be on Facebook, you gotta be everywhere. And some of the times he's right. And some of the times he's yeah. super right. Dude, the guy's way more successful than me. He's clearly very business savvy. He's This is no knock to him. He's created a lot of wealth for himself and people love his advice. Uh, but I think part of his personality is just that he likes being involved in the new stuff. It's what let him do investments in startups before they were big. But I also think it's what gets him excited to maybe make a quote unquote irrational decision of selling his future time in a way that either undervalues or overvalues him, depending on his own opinion of himself. And I think he has a very high opinion of his future self. So I think he sees himself as a billionaire that owns the Jets obligated to hang out with people because they bought his nfts well this is the thing he's like the nfts have already quadrupled in value it's like bro you sold them
1: at the original price that's not good for you (laughs) i just think he gets excited (laughs) to be
2: involved in nfts
1: yes well then this is the other thing and i I do think when i listen to it i want to be cautious of this in myself or, or maybe i'm misunderstanding him he's like i finally get to you know i've always been interested in characters and then it's a shot of him like drawing a picture that no offense, is look like it's drawn by a 13-year-old. You know, it's like, I think all of our drawing capabilities, if you're not into art, capped out around the time that you stopped drawing as a kid. <laughs> you know? Sure. So it's like, you know, these uh, two-dimensional dragons or two-dimensional figures that he's drawing. And it's, and I'm just going, I don't believe that you've been deeply interested in characters because you haven't learned to draw or done anything until well, or you could also, the also space sell us, us, Yeah, you could up. also
2: just, if you wanted to, you could just draw and sell art have yes. been doing that for a long time. Yes, you didn't need NFT. NFTs are a good way if you're an artist to monetize, but it's not like so. This there is were what I'm artists su- in the wings waiting, who are, who are, suddenly I'm going to start drawing because NFTs exist.
1: So this is what I feel like I'm seeing in the space is. NFTs have a use case which will emerge and some people will be on the cutting edge and they'll see it definitely before I do, which is like, yes, you're an artist and now you can sell your piece and you can get a cut of every future sale because as the original NFT holder, some of that
2: is always going to come back to you. Yeah, even if you're selling physical art, but the ownership is an NFT. Yeah. That way you sell. So if if you sell the piece of art for 5,000 bucks and it becomes a collector's item and sells for millions, you get a piece. You still get a piece of the millions. So people could and, and should and will make NFTs for their physical art. But then I also think there's this weird land grab of people I'm just just trying to try to, do to pump NFTs. out NFTs yeah. and convince people that they should buy it so that I can make money. But I actually don't think Gary needs the money. I think he's just excited about the idea of an NFT. I agree. And so I, I genuinely
1: would like, because I know he doesn't, A, need the money. Uh, but I And I guess it's what what I can boil it down to is personality difference, which is like the idea of putting on a conference, getting on 108 one-on-one calls to him is not a bad thing. Mm. <laughs> and I think he's not a guy who like us is very
2: opportunity cost interested because he'll do everything. Well, we're super protective of our time. Exactly. Super protective <laughs> of our time. We're very willing to go, "Hey, this could this could make you X amount of money, but it's going to take you a lot of time." We go, "No, nah, I'll just look for something that takes less time." And so for him, he doesn't go,
1: "Oh, what's the opportunity cost of selling this today versus tomorrow versus this?" He goes, I'm going to do everything. Yeah, so, talking, so, I'm going to talk to 100 stuff. people for an hour
2: each and I go that's 40 surf sessions. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather surf 40 times. And, and so that's and why so he's going to make have a lot of money. And it's going to make a
1: ton of money <laughs> yeah. for him. It's going to make a ton a ton of money. It's going to maybe and maybe perhaps if I had to steel man it, the involvement in the NFT ecosystem while this one does not need to be an NFT in my opinion and is not going to maximize value to him as an NFT or his time investment perhaps learning about the ecosystem, being involved with the people who are most interested in NFTs, and I'm sure there's a ton of speculation in there as well, will clue him into what the Facebook of NFTs is. Oh, or I the think Google that's of definitely NFTs is. I, like, I actually
2: have fully signed up to just be like my grandma who doesn't know how to use certain internet things <laughs> because I'm already, I know what TikTok is, but I don't have one. Yeah, That does not negatively affect me now mm-hmm. in any way. But I've officially set myself up to not understand what's happening in 30 years when the thing that evolved from the thing that evolved Mm -hmm. from the thing that evolved from TikTok comes out, I will be so far behind that it will be like email to a 80 year old. Trying to turn on my PS4 after not having played since PS2
1: was a trip. (laughs) Looking on the thing for the button, trying to, I was going, where does the disc go? And, And it's on the controller, which doesn't need to be like plugged in. That was,
2: that was no i think gary's like i'm gonna be up to date yeah i'm gonna be up to date forever which is just he's willing to put the time in to do that and he'll he'll know what's going on he'll understand nfts in 20 years in a way that i won't yes so i think what we're even probably he and i may agree is this particular project in and of
1: itself is not maximizing value to you in fact you're leaving quite a bit of money on the table by selling a ticket which is worth more because it's gone up in price (laughs) today as an nft and only taking a percentage of the sale than you could if you just sold the ticket to
2: this event as a, as a ticket to the event. Yeah, which, absent, which... absent wanting to know about NFT technology, mm-hmm. if Barack Obama sold a ticket when he was, you know, 10 years before he was president, to, I'm going to talk to you in 10 years mm-hmm. for an hour, the price he would get is woefully below what he would get if he just waited till he was president and then said, I'm going to sell an hour of my time. Mm-hmm. So without learning about the technology... If you think that you're on a growth trajectory and people, your demand for your time will grow, just wait till the day of. But I think Gary just loves the space, wants to get in the space, thinks it's the future in some capacity, and he'll and he'll be there. Yep. You know, he'll be on the front lines. What I do give him credit for
1: is like I'm saying from his perspective, he's
2: one of the few influencers that I've
1: actually seen have the customer's perspective in mind. Because I think for from a customer perspective, oh, yes. Yeah, most
2: people are just betting that they're not gonna be Barack yeah, Obama. Yeah. So they wanna sell you their time while they're while they have a good TikTok following because they think mm-hmm. they're gonna cap out and they're trying to get more money from you then they're actually going to be worth in 10. Oh,
1: yes. Yeah. No, he's, but he's Gary, I think, under, he's leaving value on the table yeah. at the price that he's selling his time, tickets to this event. And he's one of the few people that I believe, barring any sort of medical catastrophe, is like, he's going to do this this conference and he's going to do these yeah. calls and he's going to he's gonna do it for years and years to come. The guy's a workhorse. Um, so yeah, I do give him a ton of credit for being one of the first projects that has gone, how can I make this worthwhile for the person, absent uh, FOMO, (laughs) absent the speculative FOMO that is making so many of these other NFT influencer projects desirable.
2: Um, yeah. Can I, can I you about an NFT thing? And I I don't know if this is true or not, but, uh, you can imagine just swap out myself for friend and it would absolutely work. I just minted an NFT and bid on my own auction and sold it to myself for a hundred thousand dollars. Then I relisted it and someone bid $30,000 and they were thrilled to get it for 70% off. (laughs) Don't listen to anyone. NFTs are the future, <laughs> and it was, it's it's a great. It's just like yeah, of course this this system is being Where do played. You
1: find that or see that Instagram.
2: Or... Okay. Uh, yeah, people. It's just like a meme or something. It's just a guy wrote it. Oh, it's not real, but but the point is, if you it's totally to it, if you yeah, wanted yeah. to do it, it's so easy. Yeah. I mean, you and I have this weird ethics thing that holds us back, but that's a great scheme, and I'm sure it's happening all the time. You just get a friend, and even if it's like, oh, they track your wallet. Get a friend to do it, so that the probably is not
1: true of him, and definitely will happen in the world. Is, is where, happening, yes,
2: is happening. Happened yesterday, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just thought that was really interesting because I don't really, I don't think like that. My brain honestly doesn't work like that. So, well,
1: right now it does seem like, and I think the internet was like this at the beginning too. Is my is my suspicion is that it's just everybody with with dollar signs in their eyes is just figuring out how can I capitalize on
2: this. And, this also always happens at auctions. Yeah. I mean, there's times where people will just put up auctions on eBay and then bid on their own thing. And they'll either bid up the price to an amount that they're happy with, or they'll just buy it themselves and then try it again. But yeah, that's that's one hundred percent happening. That people are inflating the price of something so they can just make a quick five figures on something with no inherent value. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember it with, with eBay. Now that you mention it, people people had bots. They would yeah. set. They wouldn't even do it themselves. They set up bots to bid on their own stuff so just to get the max value out of a person. Anything else that you wanted to bring up? Actually, now that I think about it, remember the one where you bid and only the winning bid gets it but everyone pays. Mm-hmm. People used to have, people used to set up bots so that they were always the winning bidder. So you'd have something that is genuinely oh, worth genuinely worth yeah. 100 grand and you go this is going to sell for less than that. Yeah, but yeah. everybody every time you bid, oh I bid a dollar, you, you put, you put pay that dollar in no yeah. matter what. I bid 500 and so this person would just set up auctions for things and then win at the end and have to pay whatever 3% fee there is on his $50,000 bid, but he gets every single bid that came yeah. before it. And so he was just constantly buying his own stuff using algorithms and bots. Yeah, yeah. So all these auctions are just... Scammy crap. Yeah, getting getting schemes. Schemy, schemey. Is there something else that you wanted
1: to bring? I only have one other or two other things. Go for it. My
2: my stuff is so random.
1: Well, we do your random stuff because like I said, what the, the two questions that I got that I saw that were interesting in the comments and on Patreon were um, how to get some of the psychedelic highs without the psychedelics, which in short is holotropic breathwork, is really, really interesting and impressive and uh, has... Either they're like I don't want it to show up on a drug test for my job that will not show up it's you are just breathing uh, mm. and it can create very very powerful effects so either find a class or google holotropic breath work there's uh, audio tracks you can listen to if you do 15 minutes is where you'll start to see things 30 minutes you'll be cruising it, we, I did an hour once and that was like that was ayahuasca light I would say <laughs> I mean really? I was, it wasn't it wasn't ayahuasca it was in a ballpark beneath it for sure but it was way more psychedelic than something like MDMA. Not necessarily more beneficial than MDMA, but, you know, out of body. Trippier. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's that answer. And then other people asked me about my MDMA experience that I did, which I was going to talk briefly about because I don't have a ton else this week. Go for it. Okay, well, I will try to then, uh, this is strange because I did it with my whole family, so I want to keep other people's stuff <laughs> <laughs> private, But I'll, so I'm, I'm forced to speak a little bit. Uh, a little bit vaguely. Uh, so we did it with my mom and my dad and my brother and my sister. And the guidance of two therapists, which was really nice <laughs> to have. <laughs> two were necessary. <laughs> because Stuff was going down. Um, but the value, without running through necessarily everything that I had, was uh, I. I'll speak about myself and then try to bring it to the audience, was I'm the oldest child. So out of the five family members, I'm square in the middle. And the feeling that I had when I was there was of being the keystone of the family, like kind of be, being the one in the middle that was holding it uh, together, which is, uh, it's not like they're falling apart or anything like that, but that was that was a feeling of my role. And then I felt the pressure of that as well. So the experience was of trying to get out of that role mm. <laughs> of, and and telling other people in, in loving and good ways, like I don't uh, want to be special anymore because I think one of the things that kept me in that, you know, keystone role and what i mean by that is i was intervening into my parents arguing and bickering and and you know taking sides smoothing things over i was being the um you know super successful at, at a lot of different things in my life and uh setting everybody up with these sorts of ayahuasca mdma experiences and just felt that my job was to like be the uh, the backbone or the strength of and and sort of also the um the therapist of of the family, mm-hmm. and which it, which was a role partially that you relished for. Oh, I relished in it because what all that I was aware of prior to this, which was really interesting, is the specialness that I felt mm-hmm. of my position as so a leader and someone who gives advice. Yes, as the person who like is in, deferred to and gives advice, and people listen to and receive, and like can can make a big impact on the family. I was only aware of like what a privilege that role was mm. and when I was on the medicine I was like I was aware of the pressure of yeah. this role and I was like I don't want this anymore I can't like I I like being special but not this much mm. um and so it was me uh from my perspective other people had different things but I was like giving back things to my family like uh, responsibilities that I'd taken and then also realizing that there were responsibilities which were definitely mine which because I had held, felt so loaded up with other responsibilities was not taking so, for instance, I was going to say do you want to share. A- yeah, yeah, was um with my mom. She's always she, you know, fantastic, wonderful, loves us dearly. Never question that unconditional. Uh, what I told her, I was, I said very early. I was like, look, I don't want to feel like I am uh, a key or like the key of your happiness. And I know that my other brother and sister probably feel the same way because she's made it clear, like you guys are the best. You guys are this. You do everything. You know. I said, I, I want. I want you to have stuff <laughs> that isn't me mm. that keeps you thrilled with your life. I don't want this anymore. Uh and again, it was one of those like I loved and it it made me feel very loved that I was that that I was so uh highly regarded with her. But I wanted the world <laughs> to make her thrilled and happy and me to be part of it as opposed to uh the central piece of it. So
2: it was like giving that back to her. Um I will credit her with saying there, I know parents who, well, people I'm friends with, their parents feel similar <laughs> to her and basically condition their kid not to go very no. far. So they're like, you're the Apple my. I love you so much. And they put a lot of pressure. basically saying, I'm going to withdraw love from you or money or something to keep you within 30 minutes of me. Yeah. And then when you have a family, you'll be there. And uh, I actually, well, I'll just shout out for people that don't know, like your mom, I think Never probably feels that. that way emotionally, yeah, yeah. but you went to Brazil for two no, years, I you went off. to Colombia. Like <laughs> she didn't give you that sense that that love was conditional on doing what she wanted and staying close by. And I know people who the mom would deny that that's the case. And they would say, no, of course I would love them no matter what. There's a lot of unspoken, but almost spoken pressure to stay nearby, do what I want you to do, you know? So just saying, you know, credit to your mom. You're the apple of her eye, but she somehow made you comfortable being continents away.
1: Yeah. Well, it's always, it's, Talking about this, especially to an audience that might not have done this, you're, you're likely to talk about problems in your relationships and your family. And the assumption that can be made by people that haven't done this is, oh, this is totally unlike me. And I guess, like, the preface is, I think I had a top 3 to 5% childhood. Like, even in America in the time period that I was growing up. And, and it was really overall and incredibly good. What I've learned having done this is... Where you are in the bell curve does not negate the difficulties or the pain that you've had at mm-hmm. all. We talked about that Holocaust person who was like, all suf- suffering cannot be compared, you know? And that never rang true for me because she- I was always
2: wanting to compare, be like, well, that person had it worse. She's lucky she, well, not lucky, sorry. Her background is the only reason that that's a palatable message. Because if I said that, if I was like, "Hey guys, Ben Altman, I think all suffering is equal," I should get tomatoes thrown at me. But this woman lived through the concentration. Oh, she was on the brink of death when. So when she says, it's like, well, wait, you're just to be clear. If we were to rank it, like you've had it the the hardest. Your suffering is the to be taken the most seriously and credited the most, and your bravery in surviving is far better than mine Mm -hmm. in surviving my suffering. So it's it's very rare and interesting to see someone who comes from the position of, if you are to rank this, she's the number one, to be the one who says, that's not how it works. Your suburban suffering is yeah. not to be diminished in any way by comparing it to my concentration camp suffering. Yeah, yeah. What was her name for people that are just tuning in? I oh, no yeah, what I we're think talking the, about.
1: I think the book is called The Choice. And so if you Google that, and if if you can't find it, The Choice Holocaust, I've, you'll you'll find it. Got um, it. She became a therapist later in life. Uh, but so anyway, all of that to say that things were very good, but these, these are usually explorations of me, of the things that I've hidden from myself, which Mm. is often the difficulties, the challenges. Like I said, I was aware of the specialness, but not aware of the pressure Mm. in that particular situation. Um, so did that and she was receptive with both my parents. I told them, I was like, I want, I've intervened and there's even footage of me when I was little, like when they would argue intervening in the fights and a huge reason that people like why does your brain work like that it's like because i've been working it like that to spot holes in arguments from a very young age (laughs) and just i i sided with my mom and i and i picked apart my dad uh because i felt that she needed me to because he was a a better arguer than her and i I reflexively defended her and that's just what i did was insert myself you're a better
2: arguer than my mom (laughs) i'll be a better arguer than you and so
1: i'm very uh that's you know and I said to them I was like look I don't want this anymore like you guys uh two things I want this stuff to stop and I don't want to be the one who stops it you know so like figure it out so there was a period of time where they they were then together and I had the overwhelming feeling of like get me the heck out of here I wanted to put in headphones which was never how I felt as a kid how I felt as a kid is when they argued I wanted to eavesdrop Mm. I wanted to like listen in and be there and like and I and I have this habit of like accumulating a case building a case <laughs> building a case like not forgetting <laughs> like and it was really nice to just go I trust you to, to handle this without me that was the feeling is that it, overall I didn't trust my family to get through things without me mm-hmm. um, and that's you know they would have <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. but my child brain was very fearful of, of that and I and I made decisions about how i was going to be so it was actually a, an act of of trust to be like no you guys go do the parent thing i'm going to go do the son thing and i hung out with my brother and sister for that period of time because of that it opened up for me then with my sister because we haven't been very close we, we bickered a lot when we were kids and then when we grew up we just did our own thing um don't fight really anymore but also haven't been as close and yeah, hard to fight if you don't talk <laughs> And so having addressed that with my mom and felt literally like stuff was coming off my shoulders, I felt lighter, I felt, I was like, oh, I can now take responsibility for the stuff that does and ought to fall within my purview, which is my relationship with my sister, which was, uh, you know, uh, technically there's a chain of events, but this is my responsibility and my fault. And my, you know, the, the, the breakdown here is um, mine to own. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I was never... I could I didn't ever feel that way before
2: and so we you didn't feel like the lack of relationship was your fault
1: I felt like it was but was I don't know I was there was just I was closed off to I think the difficulty that I felt with that because I was like I'm working over here. (laughs) you know what I mean I got stuff to do in this family and this isn't it um and to be clear again like most of the times that we hang out and they come to California we are like hang out chit chat talk sit by the pool, play with the dogs, talk about what the dogs do for way too long <laughs> like most people when there's animals nearby. It's not, uh, it really is normal quotidian stuff but this is underlying underlying it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I go and I speak to her and have a good conversation um, about uh, sort of recognizing, I was like, look, I I was uh, frustrated and angry and I, I took it out on on you as a result of this. I think that one of the stories that I told myself was growing up, which sort of unlocked this for me, is that my dad was, and he was, in many, he was like, you know, basketball player, uh, very well liked, went to an Ivy League school, got a scholarship, went to UPenn, um, and then married my mom and then had me. And he was, again, there for all of the events, coach of everything, super active in my life, but also upset and angry. And I thought that he was upset and angry because of me. I thought that the, what my little mind put together was that, oh, I things were perfect, and then I came here. Mm-hmm. I screwed this up. And so I took that, and then, you know, my sister came, and I was like, same thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you, you're not supposed to come after me. You screwed up. We had a good thing going here. Um, and in sort of this whole event, I realized, because what he had never, my dad, I think, like many people of his generation... Uh, didn't talk about his own difficulties, feelings, and struggles. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I got to do, this was after, which was really important, was just like hear the things that bothered him growing up and what he was experiencing in his 20s that was tough for him and what he was going through and how he felt that getting into this relationship with my mom was a really good thing and having kids was a really good thing and helped him. And so the story that is shifting in my brain is, oh, my dad wasn't mad because of me. He was mad around me, (laughs) which which is very, very subtle for a young kid. But I think had I know had a dramatic impact on how I how I treated my
2: sister and how all of this stuff. Didn't he also have a business partner steal a bunch of money from him? Yeah, he had he and well, I. So he's probably I I mean, that's like a thing he could be mad at that had nothing to do with you, but might make him mad. And my young near you, my young brain thought that was my fault, too. And
1: even I and I know it because I I think of that and I go oh he wouldn't have had to have done all of these business things if not for this family and so when I turned his age what did I do I was like no kids financial freedom they're gonna get you know you have to get they they will ruin your life if you have them mm. um, and so in that aspect of my life I think you either wind up unconsciously mirroring your parents or like consciously running in the opposite direction of them and that in that aspect of my life I was like no 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 not gonna let this happen um so it was yeah very useful for me to have him open up and speak candidly about the things that were not good in his life that were not me um and because i was like oh and as an adult it's like oh yeah that makes a lot more sense (laughs) but that wasn't what was happening in my my child brain
2: yeah um he thought he was like on path to being George Clooney yeah. and then you came along and he's like, now I'm a suburban dad.
1: Yeah. And, and that's what I have perceived children as having done, which is it's a, it's a burden and a responsibility. And again, he never said any of those things and really never complained and, uh, did his best. And quite frankly, I think from the other kids managed to hide, to hide it very well. Yeah. I don't, I think, you know, perhaps cause I was the first, I also look at just like him. He said to me, which I think rings true. He's like, I took out on you all the feelings that I have on myself cause you are so like me. hmm and I was like, okay, I don't, I get that. I don't totally get it, but I'm starting to to piece it together. Um, but again, very, very useful catharsis for me. Um, one of the things that happened, and we talk. I don't want to go too deep into it because it involves, you know, the whole family. But I talked previously how I was molested when I was little, and that came up in this. And the big catharsis for me was, I'd always talked about it in vagaries, (laughs) not vagaries, I don't know if that's the right word. I'd always talked about it vaguely. And at one point, I was like, I need to spell this out in uh, explicit detail, not of what happened to my family, but also of the emotional impact that it had on me. And I was just like, it fucking gutted me. It hollowed out my insides. It just wrecked me emotionally. Uh, And what what I behaved at the time is I told him, I'm cool. Everything's good. Never thought about it. I was... When it happened, I don't know exactly how old I was. I was like um at least nine, maybe ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I told I was probably fourteen or something like that. Um, I don't have the exact ages, but I truly believed at that time, without a doubt in my mind, that everything was cool, didn't bother me, didn't think about it, and then for the next fifteen years didn't bother me, didn't think about it. And what I realized having done all of these these, you know, ayahuasca MDMA is it, it had serious impacts on, you know, all of my closest relationships. It made me uh, so confused because I thought that I had uh, brought it on myself and, and done it. So does this mean, you know, that, that now I'm gay because I did this and what does that mean for me? And then at the time, you know, I think it's less so but still exists, if you're gay – in 1999 that's really fucking bad <laughs> you know what I mean you, you definitely don't I think it's not as bad today but still exists and so some of the things that I cut off for myself was like okay I'm not going to be emotionally sensitive because that's that's part of part of this I'll tip not, people off that'll tip people off I'm not going to be um really friendly and uh touchy with men because that'll that'll t- and I didn't I didn't realize that I was making any of these sorts of decisions uh but I did, and, and you know, that, that had an impact on me. And so in sort of going over all of this stuff and what I was able to do in that situation was take all of those feelings and hand them to my parents and step away and be like, you handle it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, like, I was, you know, I was speaking quickly and then I was angry and then I was thinking, and I was, like, handing them. I didn't know at the time. I was like, this is what my confusion has felt like. I was like, this is what my rage has felt like. Mm. This is what my fucking frustrations have felt like. Um, and then the big shift for me was having yelled at them some and complained and then cried and then all of this, then going, and I'm not going to say thank you right now. I'm not going <laughs> to say, wow, you guys are great or I love you. I'm not going to like rush to fill your emotional need, which I think is sometimes what I've done when I feel that I've like, as soon as if, if I slip off the rails and become irrational, I will pretty quickly be like, I'm sorry, like I, sh- I shouldn't have done that. I will quickly like recover the um, the feelings that I've dumped on people and be like, no, these are my responsibility. Mm. So to have that opportunity to dump confusion on my mom and leave her bewildered as to like, are you mad at me? And like, what are you going through? And then just step away and not take it off her shoulders, again, was like, oh, such a sigh of, of relief there. Um, so I got to do that. And then again, and then with that and allowing her to handle that, I felt clarity. I felt much more understanding of, of what happened. Um, and so it, it made me think and realize that one of the things, if I ever am a parent that I think that is important for parents to do, I don't know how one socializes a kid and does this, but it's to be able to hold all of the emotions of your kid, which is, I think that, what tends to happen is in all of our families, like, look, you can't be angry or you can't be sad or you can't be weak or you can't be this because they'll just go, no, you deal with it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's certainly ages, and that would be one of them, or events where what you want to do is like hold all of it. Like sit there, not stoically, but zen-like, and handle the confusion when they go, oh, fuck you, I hate you. Don't go, you can't ever say that. Go to your room. It's like allow that to come in. Allow that to be uh, expressed and held and then I it, it just allowed me to, like, move through shit that I couldn't do because they were shouldering the emotional burden. Does that make sense?
2: I understand what you're saying. I'm not going to pretend for a second that I know the right way to raise a kid. So okay. I don't know yeah. if that's the case. I imagine it's case by case. I think probably part of raising a kid is helping them to regulate their emotions Absolutely. and not freak out every time something goes bad. So... You, obviously you don't want to create an emotionally stunted person, someone that represses their emotions. But I also think kids have temper tantrums. That's what kids do. You know, they, they, stu- they don't get exactly what they want and they scream and cry. And at some point you have to get past that to the point where when you don't get what you want, you don't scream and cry. And I assume a parent plays a role in that. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know and I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in how one goes from all right, you're 1 day old <laughs> to you're, all right, a you're a functional adult. <laughs> you you yeah. healthily manage your emotions and so who knows, you know, I mean I I understand what you're saying totally and I I don't know if there even is a should for what your parents should have done, but if there is, I wouldn't be the doctor to prescribe it. Yeah.
1: Well, not what they should do, what I might do differently or someone might do differently. Um the uh I think that you, you're correctly. What feels like a dichotomy is socializing your kid so that they're not kicking and screaming when they don't get the toy that they want and creating an environment where they don't repress emotions. It's like mm-hmm. these things seem to be pulling in opposite directions. Oh,
2: I'm not saying they are. I'm saying if they aren't, I don't know how to what your parents yeah. should have done when they were raising you. Mm-hmm. I also don't know what your parents did do. So I'll just say, but for my own self, like I was if I lost a board game, I was tearing up the cards. Like I was a terror. Um, You could tell which Monopoly cards were bad because they had rips in them. And I would try to draw a picture. And if it didn't look exactly like the photograph, I would have a complete meltdown. And then I was two years old at the time. Somehow you have to get that kid to stop doing that over time. Maybe age does it on its own, but I think we do all know people who do emotionally overreact and they are quick to violence or quick to tears and... And I think in the same way that my emotional reactions are on the low end of what you'd expect for any given situation, you know, I can get punched in the face and have my nose broken. And I'm just like mildly mad at it, but you, there's also the other end of the spectrum, which is the guys who hockey, his hockey team loses and he gets blackout drunk he and punches, punches a stranger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So it's like, you can't just train a kid to lean into his emotions at all times. And yeah. I don't know how to, I don't know how to walk that line you know, and I'm trying to figure it out. It's easy for myself. Now I'm 34. I know how to walk the line. Cause I'm not going to be the guy who gets mad and punches a hole in the wall. So I can allow myself to lean a little bit more towards my emotions. Cause I know I'll never miss long in that way. But for raising a kid who's 10, I, I have no idea how one helps that child become an adult who feels their feelings and doesn't hate their feelings, but also isn't on that other end of the spectrum where they cry at everything where the where the first mean word destroys them i mean even successful people uh, they can be in the office and they get one critical word and they're just they're just done you know near tears so yeah i don't know i don't know the answer never once for a day in my life have i researched how to be a good parent so Mm -hmm.
1: yeah and perhaps everyone's
2: different i don't like i said don't know it's also funny because i think and we've talked about this like you'd love to have had a perfect childhood with perfect parents that would be great. Uh, you turned out pretty good, <laughs> you know, like the, the, I, I, w- I wish the molestation had never happened to you, but in terms of your, your parenting and your relationship with them, cause they didn't do it. Let's beat <laughs> that for people who have not seen the original episode. They created a smart, intelligent, happy person who was able to be, make his own path and achieve great success his own way. You know, like I think you've had a really solid go of it, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, so, uh, I think simultaneously they could have done things better, but also like you turned out really well and your life is really good, you know? Yeah. So it's a tough, it's a tough balance. And I'm not, I'm not invalidating the fact no, that no. you think they did something wrong. It's like as someone who's thinking about being a parent, I don't know, if you were my kid, I'd be like, all right, I fucked some shit up, but I did pretty well.
1: Well, yeah, you know, what's interesting is that, um, and I don't know, maybe maybe I spoke in such a way is that you're, as you're listening is like, Almost like trying to give a grade overall. Like I did
2: pretty good and the- No, no, I'm just saying that's how I would feel. So like I- I'd be proud if my kid turned out like you, you know. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I think you can simultaneously as a parent be like, yeah, there's things I would have done differently. If in hindsight, no one gave me a book on how to be a parent. Yeah. I just got someone pregnant. All I did was the genetic thing. You know, your parents got married first, which is cool. But at the end of the day, like the only qualifying factor of having a kid is just <laughs> ejaculating into somebody who's fertile. <laughs> so I think they, all parents could have done something better and that's not to invalidate that by not doing everything the right way, they gave you a bunch of stuff that you are having to do a lot of work to let go of. And at the same time, as someone who's really scared of parenting because I'm worried of how my kid will turn out, I'm like terrified that I'll be a bad parent. I don't know. This is like a pretty solid amount of mistakes to have made, I guess, from the parent's perspective.
1: Sure, sure. And again, it's, it's, wow. I'm floating around something that I hear you saying that I, th- because what I'm hearing and I, and I know one, I appreciate because I can sometimes talk and not give them the credit. I also hear something in you that I felt in myself, which was this reflexive jump to protect them. And I guess one of the overall things, and let me know if, if I'm misunderstanding or to,
2: or to explain or justify. I'm or, setting myself up to be kind to myself, man. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm setting myself to be kind to myself as a parent. Your parents have been parents for 34 years. Yeah, yeah of course they've had things that they didn't do optimally. Mm-hmm. Like I have to be, I have to be empathetic to them. If I'm ever going to be empathetic to myself, this is something my psychedelics have taught me it's sure. Like for me to be, to judge other people. I have to judge myself just as harshly. And so I think like, as I sit here and listen, I just, I guess I'm just trying to like for people that don't know your parents for myself, for your parents who I know, watch this and for you just kind of be like, yeah, I think this is all right. It's all valid. None And nothing I'm saying invalidates it, but also I've never gotten anything perfect ever. No parents ever going to get parenting perfect ever. Like I think there's a trauma just like is, I think people fight back on that. But a, a, my opinion is that everyone has some f- sure. amount of trauma. It can be a little, it can be a lot. Um, and again, yeah, this has nothing to do with the fact that you were molested, which I think is, is awful. This is more just in terms of your parents' raising you and
1: this is something that I haven't I'm still working on in my life but I sensed it I sensed it in this conversation I sensed it in MDMA is that the you know you're like I have to because I want to be kind to myself my what I was seeking in that experience with my parents was not judgment nor was it punishment not in the slightest Mm -hmm. and it wasn't a reason at all to withdraw my love in fact what I felt like I was doing was like expressing the deep faith that i had in them by trusting them enough to tell them how much i was disappointed in them um which was over like an overarching meta act of like this is how much i love
2: you like you Mm -hmm. guys you guys could screw up to the end of the world and i would love you and you haven't um well i guess what i'm saying is stepping back to the original thing i commented on it like maybe your parents could have used more giving you emotional space But I don't think the answer is always that when your kid is having an emotional reaction to give them space, take ownership of it. Like at some point you have to be like, I get that you wanted chocolate ice cream and they're sold (laughs) out. You're flipping out in the supermarket. This is not going to work out. Having this level of a reaction is not going to work out. You know, so I think you had just said something along the lines of like, you know, when you're a parent, you want to learn how to just create space for an emotion and just accept it. And I'm saying that's a good skill to have, not just for kids, for everyone, for every person in your life. I'm sure that would be very well received when you are in charge of a kid. I think you also do at some point have to be like, all right, well, we got to get this guy from toddler to adult in a way where he's not, when his hockey team loses, punching people in the face about it, Mm -hmm. you know, totally, totally. Um,
1: I agree. I agree very much with, with, the need to socialize a kid and, and also like, yeah, they did fantastic and, and, and all of that part of what I'm experiencing with myself. And I think this is like, if I even were to list a litany of all the things that they messed up and not pepper in all the good things, at least for me right now, um, that doesn't invalidate for a second how appreciative and how much love I have. And I sure. think what I, what I was experiencing trying to create space when I don't, you know, I, f- I feel a little bit in this because I think that maybe you're a little bit of the same, and you're also trying to protect future Ben from <laughs> future. So also got an audience of strangers that don't <laughs> yeah, yeah. know you, they and don't know, don't me. know your parents. Yeah, yeah. Is is um yeah, to have more space to to express a negative emotion with a trusted underlying feeling of love without having to like reassure that as mm-hmm. often was something that was helpful for me in the experience, and I do think my parents, as they watch, hopefully recognize that like even if I were to sit here and talk about all like uh what I feel and I don't know if they feel it is that I actually feel more secure in in the relationship that we have and and the love that we have so secure that I could spend 10 minutes or 15 minutes being really critical without saying a nice thing and it's like still fucking locked in and stable I'm sure they feel that yeah um so in any event and also like it it, it wasn't I had no point that I want to punish them. I, just, I wanted, um, what I felt, the feeling was like, I want you to get what's going on inside of me without, um, without fears that it will reflect negatively on how you performed. And that, that's, I think a really, I know for me, I, that's really tough for me. It's really tough to hear criticism from anybody, I imagine, especially a kid, and go, I'm gonna take this opportunity just to feel what you're feeling, totally empathize with you, and not reflect on what a fuck up I am you know that's like so hard, but I think was very it was good i because of you know the therapists and all the support that we had, I was able to get that, which was like really nice um so other people had in my family had other stuff for them which which was theirs that that I won't comment on but uh yeah, overall it was. As I reflect on what it was, I think it was for me a proper accounting of. You know, it was a lot of truth telling. Like this hurt me, I hurt you, and it was like a proper accounting of like I've been way too involved in this relationship and not involved enough in this relationship, um, and I need to do a better job here, and I need to trust you more to do a better job here, uh, and. Yeah, but overall, I think, underscored again, not going to be true of everybody, but I, I did have a large portion of my life where as much as I love my family, I was all like, you know, friends are, friends are family friends, and friends are fucking fantastic and super important. For me, and I don't know if this is going to be true of everybody, this is just an N of one, is that I? it was really important for me to go back and tell the truth that I told and, and share these relationships, um, mend them, fix them. They don't replace my friendships at all. In fact, I don't even think they compete with them. They're just like on a different a different uh, spectrum or whatever. But it was very important to do that for me with my family. And if you're out there and something inside you is going, maybe me too, it, it's possible that that is the case for you. So I don't think it's a guarantee for everybody.
2: So overall really good. And that's what... I got a question. Yeah. How is it going to change your relationship with your siblings? Because you talked a lot about your parents, but you briefly said in the beginning, you've been serving as an intermediary for your fights yeah, with yeah, your parents. Yeah. And kind of parenting your parents and your siblings. Yeah, and you're yeah. going to put that down. And then you talk about how you're going to slot into the kid role with your parents more when they're fighting, put in the headphones, walk away. Mm-hmm. What is your new definition of a brother or what responsibility... You had mentioned you you think there's some role as yeah. a brother that you were kind of being more of a parent. Like, what does yeah. that? what does that mean for you?
1: So, like, my sister... I think it's with my sister. Um, I... You, just, you know, she, she went in the traditional path and I went entrepreneur. And so I have an air or had, or maybe even still have an air of like, I did this the right way. You're still, you're messing things up. You know, like you you could be doing things differently, which would be better. Mm-hmm. And it's more like, we're the same. Like, and you're doing things in your way while it maybe isn't my way is just as good. And I have, there's things that I can learn from you about mm-hmm. your way of doing things. Like I'm not ahead of you like that um and it and it was a lot of the sameness it was like as i reflected on the past with with my my brother and sister it was just i was like yeah we're not i'm not in front of you or ahead of you i'm 2 years in front of you but that's barely anything um present day i think it'll mean that you know we spend more time together we got this new this new place where they come out which is uh i wanted not just as a function of what happened with this one but like i was knew that I was moving in this direction where I wanted to be able to host the people that I love friends and family mm-hmm. so I think they'll all come out more um yeah and I think I'd, with my sister it's less uh less desire to be preachy cuz we weren't talking as much so I wasn't preachy but I when we would I'd be like you got to leave your job you got to do it this way yeah, it's yeah. just like you know you're you do it your way like you've you've figured it out with my brother I don't know I mean we're fucking on top of each other you know? <laughs> <laughs> like we we live together and are and are still hanging out but what we did have which you know we'll still scream at each other in league of legends but i do think is is under there is um we mended bonds of uh, or fractures in our relationship that were deeper than yelling at each other about league of legends and so i think that there is if uh, hopefully said again but you know we shared verbal communication of how much we loved each other and i think what we learned from my dad, who was very loving, but the way he showed it, he was like the coach of everything. Mm-hmm. And if he screwed up, he would like find a way to like really help you. I remember one year he just like did my taxes for me after we got in a big fight. He mm-hmm. <laughs> like my taxes were done. Yeah, gifts and too, right? Gifts. Like one time Henry, he got in a fight with Henry. Next thing you know is he's on an, an airplane with a Galaxy, a Samsung Galaxy. You know, yeah. just, you know, his ticket is paid for. Um, so he wasn't, he was not good at apologizing or verbally expressing how much he cares about you. Mm. Um, And so we were able to do that in that experience like that. And I think what will mark progress, which, you know, won't happen probably right away, but is more of that would be more verbal expressions. And so that's... And less coaching, less advising? I don't think so, actually. I don't think so. That's just for your sister? That's for her. That's what I felt with her. Um, With my brother, I don't know the exact... um, It might actually be more with him uh i don't know we'll have to figure it out just curious yeah but so yeah it was a very good event and hopefully one day you know we'll have a center where we can offer those sorts of experiences to
2: yeah it's a tr- it's a real tragedy that it's not legal yeah it's a real shame that people can't get their family i think familial bonds and i also think like i said every family has familial trauma it's a real shame you can't just get a house with two therapists and some mdma and go through this without breaking the law so yeah. Fingers crossed for MAPS and Johns Hopkins and all the other people that are pioneering psychedelic medicine. A bunch of lawbreakers in my family. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean. No, it sucks. It sucks that everybody can't have that same experience. You know, It sounds like it was really beautiful and powerful. So It is wild because, I mean, the risk of
1: abuse of alcohol, I mean, we know it. It's clearly high. It can very quickly involve other people if you get behind the wheel of a car. MDMA, I'm sure has tons of risks associated with it, but I bet if it were legal you'd see fewer related deaths, fewer related oh, for beatings, sure. fewer related sexual assault cases. It's it's just it's so backwards that we have this society where alcohol I mean,
2: alcohol messes people up really, really Oh, yeah. Badly. For a lot of people, alcohol makes you violent. It makes you make bad yeah. desi- or illegal decisions. Uh, it's,
1: but MDMA is, which is just like, okay, can I just give everyone a hug? And it's dangerous, to be clear. It is dangerous well, I if, think there's if, two, if, if abused.
2: There's two dangers that I can think of with MDMA. Doing too much of it. Yeah. Thinking you're doing MDMA and getting something else. Legalizing it cuts that down. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, you get and it's not, it not to like sp- cocaine where you do. I mean, if you do cocaine, you probably get more violent. Like I could see an argument, although I'm on team just legalize it all and figure out how to regulate it. But if you're like, listen, when people do cocaine, they mostly just get in fights. Mm-hmm. Okay. But MDMA is so not that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I've never,
1: even even the people, I've never done it recreationally, but even when I've seen people do it recreationally, I've never had a problem with someone on MDMA.
2: Oh no, you're so friendly. You yeah, love I've, everybody. You just want to give had everybody some problems. hugs.
1: I mean, you got punched in the nose, had your nose broken by a drunk dude. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's sure just, did. it gets, it, it screws shit up. Um, but I think that was it for
2: stuff that I had. Did you bring anything else? Oh dude, I'm going to cap the episode on your stuff. Are you kidding? That's, that was so vulnerable and deep. We'll cover and we'll cover the, other stuff. Yeah, I'll wait next week to talk okay. about the unimportant random stuff that I've come across. Yeah, right. I think we just cap it on that and go to questions. Sure.
1: Let's do it.
4: Cool. First one is. Um, I was just wondering what kind of fictional books that you guys have found impactful.
1: What kind of fictional books Impactful? What does impactful mean? Well, I remember one. Back in the day, I read Ender's Game, and then I read Ender's Shadow after that. And I don't know if Orson Scott Card meant to do this, but Ender's Shadow is written from the perspective of a side character in mm-hmm. Ender's Game. And that, it's obvious, but, like, that taught me that other people really exist, <laughs> like, in their own ways. And I don't know that he meant to do it, which might have made it even more powerful, because he wasn't leaving, like, these breadcrumbs in the way that he might have if he'd planned it all along. Yeah. But when you get into this character's, Bean's mindset and you see how his attempts to connect with Ender are misunderstood. And it was, it was, uh, cause I was just so certain of who Bean was a, a small character, both literally and figuratively who didn't tremendously matter to the, to the story. He played uh, a part. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, I think he was like maybe arrogant or whatever in, mm-hmm. the, in these sorts of ways. And then you see it from his and he's just trying to connect with Ender and he's got a tough backstory that takes up a huge f- Yeah, and he, and he admires Ender. And what you don't him. realize from
2: Ender is that he's getting a lot of pressure to potentially have to replace Ender. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you really learn that. You don't,
1: and he's, he's, he's like working behind the scenes in his own way and you're like, oh my God, I judged you so wrongly. Yeah, no, it really <laughs>
2: teaches you not to assume other people's motivations or what's going on in their head. Yes. Um, so that was one that had a big impact on me.
1: I loved, I mean, Impact, Game of Thrones, was uh, Song of Ice and Fire was took over my life for a period of time. Um, made me probably never, ever write a fiction book because it's yeah. just like, I won't even, this is
2: ridiculous. That's why you hate winter so much.
1: That's <laughs> why I hate winter so much. <laughs>
2: what about you? I, I don't know if this is right or not, but when I hear this question, I kind of split immediately into two camps, which is nonfiction books that changed my life, which I read for the positive changes they would have on tomorrow's Ben Altman and then fantasy books, which I read purely for the love of it. And I wasn't trying to get anything out of it. So anything I got might've been subconscious. Maybe I got a whole bunch of my ethics from them. You know, maybe my desire to stand up for the little guy and do what's right. And you know, maybe that all comes from looking up to Aragorn, but I wasn't at the time codifying. Oh my God. This is why it's important to be nice to orphans. Because Harry Potter is a, you know, it was just escapism for me. I love fantasy books and I've read them all, but I can't think of one that I remember taking a lesson from. Whereas all the nonfiction books, you know, for our work week, How to Win Friends and Influence People, oh, that stuff was obvious how it changed me. So I don't know. The big main impact I would have is, I'd say, just a love of of fantasy mm-hmm. just creating those worlds and that bleeds into the movies I like and th- the games I like to play but I can't think of any life lessons I mean yeah they're all they're all lessons about
1: storytelling that I take from the fantasy books which is basically like you got to kill a main character come on <laughs> <Like> that's, <laughs> that's the big one that I took they killed Boromir in, in the first Lord of the Rings and then Really, nobody. <laughs> that was, that uh, was they fake you out with Gandalf. Yeah, which was just and, and George. George said it shouldn't have brought him back. I, it was so much more powerful when he just disappeared, and then he, you know, he's super powered. He shines a light on the Nazguls, and they fly away. And the whole thing felt less high stakes for me after mm-hmm. that. When when there was resurrection was introduced in such a costless way. George George's George Martin has talked about this, and I
2: totally second his yeah. his feelings on it. Yeah, you and I are different because I, I agree that that's a better story, but I'm actually totally... What I don't like is Do Sex Machina. I don't like a, a ending that makes no sense, but I'm totally cool with just the classic hero's journey of a guy or a girl. They come in and they're not special and then they accrue a bunch of skills and powers and then at the end they're amazing yeah. and nothing bad happens to them. They live happily ever after. I'm like, yay, <laughs> that's what I'm trying to be. Yeah.
1: So I like the... I mean, I, I did the video. I like hidden hero's journeys, which is I think what George Martin was able to accomplish with Jon Snow, which Jon Snow is a literal... Prince who was promised, born of the two families,
2: to be the Song of Ice oh, yeah. and Fire. If you, if you gonna just told get the whole perfect... story from Jon Snow's perspective and said ahead of time who yeah. he was, it's just basically King yeah. Arthur. Right, going to ride a dragon at some
1: point, and he definitely will be more impactful in in the fight at Winterfell. So it's like it's classic, classic hero's journey. Yeah, and I think Danny's going to be classic descent into maleficent madness. You know, mm-hmm. this this is this is the origin story of the Dark Queen. Um, so they're very regular stories at a thousand square feet but it starts with ned stark 40 percent of the first book is ned stark and it completely throws you off the trail so it has these elements that are so satisfying in there but they're still surprise reveal drama stakes feel
2: real because you're not basically just a trope laden story but where he hides who's who and therefore you you feel
1: risk with with them because you're not aware that danny is danny and john is john like you didn't know that they were the ones that were going to have the plot armor so honestly without the tv show and reddit you still wouldn't yeah Oh, no, unless you're – yeah, I wouldn't know. I didn't read. you got to be deep in the foreshadowing. Yeah, to get that. So he's a great writer. I love him.
4: Next is, based on what I've heard from your podcast, it seems like sincerity plays a pretty important role in your lives. How would you describe that role, and would you consider it a priority while cultivating your personal relationships? Sincerity, yeah. I mean, sincerity, we talk about –
0: what is the word?
1: Authenticity. Honesty, I'm just sort of treating them similarly. What's the difference? Sincerity is, I think, includes the emotional component of it, whereas honesty is a little bit flatly rational. So I'm working on sincerity. I've definitely tried to be honest and say how I'm feeling. I think sincerity, including the emotional component, is tougher for me. It's easier for me to just describe my feelings than it is to feel them and have them witnessed. But yeah, it's super important. I get very anxious in situations where I feel that I cannot be truthful, authentic, or sincere. It makes me very uncomfortable. I, uh, yeah, it screws me up. I don't know why. So like I've, you know, part of the reason we have the podcast is because in part wanted to have fun conversations with Ben and in part wanted to express some of the views that I have on politics, which other people don't like because I felt like I need to say this. Too many people are, uh, really in love with the cardboard cutout version of Charlie that they see on Charisma on Command. And I and I need them to at least know some of the political beliefs that I have that would make them not like me.
2: Well, it's interesting because in ter- you said, I don't know where it comes from, but it, you weren't always like that. You were pretty normal in terms of your view of honesty until I think Six Pillars of Self-Esteem and Radical Honesty, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. I mean, in high school or even your first job, it, there was a point where you'd tell a white lie.
1: Yes, and I think... I think where everybody starts with honesty is everybody thinks they're honest. They don't think too deeply about it. Everybody. They think that other people lie and they get upset with them. And then what the six pillars did for you is it's got all these exercises. Like if I was 5% more honest today, I would have. And all of a sudden you have so much to say. You're like, wait a second. I didn't realize in a single day's time that there could be so many fibs and so many white lies and so many adjustments to how I was presenting myself in order to gain an advantage or get my way or make someone like me. Uh, so that that created an awareness of mm-hmm. the depth of the problem. And then continuing to do psychedelics, it, it, you just go, holy shit. If I'm not honest about the small stuff, which doesn't seem to matter, I'm conditioning my subconscious mind to not offer any of the juicy, valuable morsels that I spoke about earlier today, which are really fucking key to my happiness in life. Um, so it does seem like, to me, I think that uh, my road to feeling more whole. Still been been happy pretty much the whole time, but feeling more whole and complete has been through telling harder and harder truths first internally to myself and then secondarily to the people who they involve in my life. So yeah, it's been, uh, I still know that there's a lot more, but it's been very important to me. What do
2: you think? I mean, yeah, same. (laughs) I don't have anything else. Cool. We've talked about this stuff a lot. I feel like if one of us has a different philosophical breakthrough, they'll bring it to the other person, you know? Mm -hmm. And so people will often, they'll say, Oh, you guys are so similar, but it's, it's not because we, well, we started the same way, but then it's because anytime one of us has like a, Hey, six places, self-esteem was life-changing. The other person reads it, you know? So Mm -hmm. I, I could easily see, and this did happen with other friends growing apart. But I think the reason that often with this podcast can be an echo chamber is because we will just sit down and hash it out. You'll, you know, one of us says honesty is the most important thing it's more important than anything else even happiness and the other one goes well I'll take the happiness side <laughs> even if I you know even if I, well, I'm just yeah. gonna steel man it and we'll just duke it out until we come to okay that's the best argument for that and that's the best argument for that and overall it turns out that this is the more compelling of the two but now we have the steel man for both mm-hmm. that's just how we interact that's how we interact as friends it's not even something we do on, as a purposeful exercise so yeah, we're going to have all the same opinions on a lot of this stuff. On a lot of it. And then there's, of course, we have some different baseline experiences which
1: can point us in different directions. Yeah, yeah. And the most different experiences that we've had that have led to different philosophical takes are the wildly different psychedelic experiences that are completely incomparable. Yep. You know what I mean? So, like, the things that I think that are most dramatically different from you are rooted in experiences I have that I can't even transmit to you. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, bro, I don't know what to tell you. Like it's all simulation. <laughs> or you're or you tell me that or something. Yeah. And you're like, I find that entirely uncompelling. Do you have any justification for that? You're like, no, no, I just know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's where we've uh, diverged in our
2: that's philosophical words, thinking. words can't convey yes. what comes through on psychedelics.
4: Yeah. Last is you guys wrote a book on charisma on command. How come you guys don't talk about that?
1: Why don't I talk about
4: it? So I, I wrote it. one It's funny, man. The book doesn't have uh,
1: either of our names on it, uh, page numbers. It was uh, we. I did it. It's written a long, long time a ago. Long time ago. Yeah, in 2014. Um, and then it was, it was. I think it's. I think it's pretty good. I think it could be better. Um, just from a writing perspective, from a presentation perspective. What I also that's got an action guide in there, which was really my first attempt at. Uh, the idea behind Charisma University, which is let's break this down into days. But I don't think it's as, I think so the exercises are good, but I don't think it's structured in a the most useful way to learn. Uh, whereas I think having gone through Charisma University and redone it, I think four times yep. at this point, I've tweaked it so that it, is not just 30 days of stuff to do it is thirty days starting with a small on ramp increasing in stuff that gets a little bit more difficult but it like it's purposely it's very very
2: purposely laid out well we've learned I mean since 2014 we've learned a lot about how to teach you yes. know we came in when we started the business we had six years of learning charisma and coaching people in charisma but what we'd never learned is how do you convey knowledge in a book or in a mm-hmm. video course that's something we'd never studied so yeah it's it's Charisma University has had to go through a bunch of iterations and the book has not. And another thing from a business perspective
1: is that, so books, you know, typically retail on Amazon for $9.99. If it's a a printed book, you're paying $1 or $2 to get it printed. Amazon's going to take a cut. You're making like $3 a book. Mm -hmm. If it's a Kindle, you're making like $6 a book. You, in order to succeed and make a business off of a book, you need to either... Accept that this is not going to make money and is going to set you up for your speaking tour, and then you need to aggressively pursue that and start trying to make take down five-figure speaking things where you do the same hour over and over and over again in different cities in front of different audiences, which is, I've seen people do it. It's not what I want. Uh, or you need to sell millions and millions of copies, and it is not going to be a independently published. You're going to have to eventually get put in touch with Penguin, and you're going to have to have a breakout success Mm -hmm. so given that i thought that was very unlikely and i knew i didn't want to do the book tour i said let's let's have a different business model and the business model that we landed on is we do a video course it's got higher margins we can do more because it's a video course i can like show you the charisma as opposed to describing the event that happened which was always tricky in the book i'm like writing you know when bill clinton walked into a room i'm setting a stage and it's just easier to see Mm -hmm. Um, can't use Bill Clinton. We use, we use interviews from, uh, people that have graciously given us access to their footage. Tom, Bill, you Lewis Howes. We have those interviews are are in charisma university with, with the people that they interview demonstrating what they are doing, but I don't have to describe it. You can just see Mel Robbins say hello. And it's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) this is what it looks like. So from a business model perspective, I thought it was also when you're talking about charisma video just did better. We saw the difference between the blog and YouTube. Um, and so that's why we don't talk about the book. Also, at this point, given that it is from 2014, I'm don't have a, I'm not as proud of it, so I don't really want to push people there for the reasons that I express. Well, this
2: is one of the reasons you reshot Charisma University. Yeah, yeah. Because you, in order to promote it on the YouTube channel over time, when you first made it, you were really proud of it, and then you got to a point where you go, "I, if I'm going to endorse this, I have to reshoot it. Mm-hmm. And so you did. You remade it so that you can enthusiastically promote it. Yeah. And I think if you read the book, you probably have a lot of things that you're changing. It. It's yeah, seven years old, uh, And then I could promote it. And then, you know, I'd have to
1: really do a heavy rewrite and I could then be like, Oh, I love it now. And now I can tell everyone about it. And I just don't want to do that. Yeah.
4: We've got other stuff going on. So that's why. Cool. Next one is I had an interesting debate come up with my current partner as we look to plan deal breakers in the relationship. So I was curious as to what you three think. Uh, where do you draw the line in separating artists and their art? For perspective, my partner is very much against letting our children listen to or consume any medium, whether that's music, movies, or books, from artists who are horrid people who have done horrid things. So Michael Jackson and his issues with what he did with children, Dr. Seuss in racism, or Lost Prophet, who is one of my favorite bands of all time, and their lead singer, Ian Watkins. For me, I don't want to draw an arbitrary line of people doing shit things and boycotting their amazing art. What are your thoughts?
1: There's nothing left. There's no, There's nothing left. If you... If you uh, for, I mean... First off, the, the knowledge that we have about Dr. Seuss, well, I mean, there, there's a whole thing to unpack here, which is like, did you do realize that everyone prior to, uh, I don't know, 1800 was totally racist, so you're not allowed to do anything back? Like, if, if you're going to hold them to 2021 standards of morality without recognizing morality has evolved and that they might have been a, an exemplary model for their particular society, but might fall completely short in ours, you're not, at, you're not able to access any of the classics, any of them. There's just there's nothing that would they had slaves in ancient yeah, exactly. Greece. exactly. You, you know well, what I mean? Yeah, like, you
2: can't uh, even. I think you've gone farther. It's even more. You can't recent.
1: read Aristotle. You can't read. Yes. You can't read Plato. You can't read like it's just you've got nothing. Um, so I think that when I heard uh, there was just one that she, that was Doctor Seuss, I was like, okay, if you're if you're gonna start going back 70 years and demanding that people are not racist, you can't you can't. There's nothing that's beyond 120 200 years that you're gonna have that you're going to find checks, the boxes. Mm-hmm. And I mean that you go to, you're you going to go to, you know, oh, no, Confucius. Like, how did, I don't know, but how did Confucius feel about the Japanese or about the Vietnamese or about, like, I, I, I guarantee that there's serious problems in all these people. Gandhi was, was not a good husband. Um, so uh, I, I actually think that if that is your partner's stance, that she probably would benefit from turning that critical eye inward. Like, that that willingness to look at history and the world as being so bad, I actually think, is a projection um, in many cases. And not to say that she's an awful person or is racist herself, but that she is uncomfortable in, like, with her own inner badness and therefore is especially sensitive to it in the world, in art, in those sorts of things. Again, not to say that she's racist, but that there's elements of her which she finds... Bad, wrong, morally unacceptable. That also definitely does.
2: I mean, I don't know what the what the story is with Doctor Seuss, but definitely like has an iPhone that got came from a cobalt mine, yeah, yeah. or a blood diamond, yeah, yeah. It's like or eats meat from a factory farm. It's it's
1: crazy. It's yeah. So at, at that level of of um, that moral standard, I I feel like it would probably take three minutes to find a way in which she herself is not going to live up to the moral standards 60 years from now and therefore all of her work ought to be thrown out and not she, seen. She like, can't parent her own <laughs> <Yeah>. kid. <laughs> can't, it's, it's, it's just not right or fair. So secondarily, okay, then let's take things that are closer to modern day, more serious infractions. The person knew at the time that this doesn't jive with-
2: Yeah, assuming Michael Jackson like, was a Michael pedophile.
1: Jackson, let's assume that everything in Finding Neverland is true. Um, again, not that this should give me more clout. We talked about it today. I was molested. I fucking love Michael Jackson. Uh, Oh really? I love his music. It's, it's fucking yeah. amazing, man. It's, it's okay. He's okay. The free
2: willy song is so good. <laughs> this is like my the unpopular free willy opinion. Song is so that, good that, uh, You're right.
1: I'm not, I'm, I, I like some Michael Jackson songs,
2: but no, this is just the thing that gets me booed off stage. Yeah. And there, I just don't, even if he didn't do anything, I just don't like his <laughs> music. Let me play, maybe the, thriller.
1: The free willy song is, is so, is so touching. <laughs> um, uh, but, So, yeah, that's me, and that's not an argument for it. But I'm just saying, you know, as someone in the aggrieved category. I uh, also
2: would say it just depends on, to to your point, if it's going to, if it's like the rule is they have to be an exemplar of ethics, and therefore we're not going to teach our kid the Socratic method. It's one thing. But if they're like, hey, listen, Michael Jackson molested my cousin. Mm -hmm. So, no Michael Jackson. No Michael Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fine. Whatever. Yeah. Fine. Pablo Picasso murdered my cousin great, 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 great <laughs> grandma. So no Pablo Picasso paintings, fine. You yeah, know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think there's a difference between there's just one person I have a real big issue with versus I'm going to do this thing it's, it's that so excludes uneven. all
4: It's also people. like, I bet you Dr. Seuss,
1: and the other thing is you're just at the vicissitudes of the news because Dr. Yes. Seuss was probably totally cool up until six months ago, at which point, oh, now we have to throw out. Well, the him bigger out, question CNN is what, what, uh,
2: what author are you trusting hasn't done anything yeah, yeah. bad? I, Tolkien, I mean, like,
1: the orcs are black people, you know what I mean? Like, and they've got Cockney accents in the Lord of the Rings. It's a low, it's a, it's a class story, and all of the fucking elves speak in RP. So this is a story about horrible poor. You know, it's it's there's there's going to be nothing left if that is the lens that you view the whole world through. And worse, you won't live up to it yourself, and you will blind yourself from your own moral failings, which is really the 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 place where this where the most good can be done in the world is by turning that critical moral standard inward and finding the flaws and addressing them either by working them out coming to accept them and seeing seeing the flaws in humanity like that's that's the real value that would your kids would benefit from seeing not not oh no there's these untouchables throughout history which is just like they're all untouchable if we play this game
2: (laughs) but if their only rule is no Bill yeah, Cosby yeah, in yeah. the house. Yeah, yeah. Just don't watch
1: Bill Cosby. Totally fine. And it's like, look, this this one is too, hits too close to home um, for for these reasons. Go okay, fine.
2: Um, no Cosby show. It's fine. Yeah, it just depends on if this is a one thing that she has a particular issue with, or if this is a global. But then philosophically, there's a question of like, what are
1: we throwing out when we throw out the art, and what are we throwing out when we condemn the person? Is like my impression that the problem with Michael Jackson is not his harmonies, it's not his, and it's not you know, there's not that there's um uh, that his, the child molesting was an integral part of the production of thriller that, you know, that's
2: well. Not some people just don't want to fund. Some people just go that. I don't, I don't sure. want to fund this person. I think
1: he's dead. You know, I don't think, I don't think you're contributing in any, in any significant way. Yeah. Um, and if you're concerned about what you're funding, like, look to your clothing,
2: look to your food. Well, that's what I your, was saying. Yeah, you know like, what I mean? You like, wearing a blood diamond yeah, on your yeah, ring? Or yeah. you, do you have a cobalt yeah, yeah. piece in your phone? Do you wear your clothes from? You yes. wear a
1: Nike? So, so given that there's probably all of these contradictions in the uh, stringentness of this application yeah. I think that it probably uh, philosophically if it's if it's applied to you know your favorite band lost profits all of a problem it's like take off your diamond stop eating the meat you know like sorry you can't have that outfit does not yeah. that that comes from uh, that comes from exploitation in China I don't think that your partner would appreciate that just like I don't think it's very fair for her to say oh your favorite band is I don't even know what lost Prophet. unless she yeah.
2: is absolutely she
1: was the victim of herself of lost profit or no or maybe. is
2: just wearing hemp clothes she made herself <laughs> doesn't have a cell phone you know maybe this is the one person yeah, I know who you vegan, can't who you can't talk to farms yeah. her own vegetation and you just go god bless you're the only person that can make art for your kid it's, it's Greta Thunberg man sailing across the ocean. yeah, yeah exactly maybe she's yeah so if that's the case then you have a unicorn on your hands yeah and I bet against you're in trouble for the arguments (laughs) she's she's got got the high ground
1: all right guys so that is it for the podcast we're going to hop over to patreon now we got a bunch of questions that we'll be answering essentially another podcast we're covering I think how to make sure that a first date goes really well what to do in conversations where you feel like you're running out of things to say and you want to make sure that you are interesting throughout a long conversation how to be popular in college and a ton of other stuff so if you're interested in that you want to see it Any tier in our Patreon gets access to that, and it starts just $3 a month. Plus you get access to like 100 other patron things that are essentially just other podcasts. So we hope that you decide to join. Helps us keep the podcast going either way. We appreciate you guys, and we'll see you soon. Peace.